0: Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Back to the Pavilion podcast If it's your first time listening, welcome If you've listened before, welcome back All the previous episodes are still available on Spotify, Google Podcasts or a host on Anchor FM So please do go back and catch up with Jack Russell, David Gower, Matt Machin or Fabian Cowdry amongst others And find out what they've been doing since they hung up their boots the last time Today we speak to a cricketer who despite being recognised as probably the best pure wicketkeeper in the country while he played, he found himself released by both his home county Hampshire and Somerset aged just 24, despite having been instrumental in Hampshire winning both white ball competitions and reaching finals day on another occasion. Since then he's become a highly regarded coach and written a superb book about his experiences. So. Please join me as we welcome Michael Bates back to the pavilion.
1: Obviously the people that you that, that are close to you, um, your support network, if you like, they're, they're always there. My family I'm very close to, so I spent a lot of time with them, ended up moving back in with them. Uh, and then a couple of lads that I was really close to at Hampshire, they'd check in and make sure I was all right and stuff. But um, yeah, it is very much like that, really. Um, you know, because you're... As, as a lot of lads similar to me would have would have known nothing different. Mm. They would have been cricket for the majority of their lives. They would have known that's what they wanted to do. You know, they get there, they, they forge a career, and then all of a sudden that's taken away. It's it's really
0: it's tough. It's really difficult to, to deal with. I mean, and you, I mean, you've been at Hampshire for, for the most of your career, and then they released you, and then you got that short term deal at Somerset. Was was either of those more difficult to take, or? Um, I think
1: Hampshire was probably. Well, I think they were actually both very hard to take for different reasons. Um, Because Hampshire was my home, um, you know, a lot of the lads were like family to me, um, and I'd been there, as I said, since I was about ten, I think. Um, So that was that was really really difficult to take, knowing that, you know, my journey with them was over. Um, and potentially my journey within cricket was over as well. And as I've just said, you know, I didn't know any different. Um, but you know, the the opportunity at Somerset um, was a brilliant one, and I absolutely loved it there. And I guess it you know it gives you a little bit of hope. Uh, and because I did get on so well with the coaches, with the players, I was I was gutted that 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 ended. Um, you know, because I was just kind of starting to get into it. Um, and yeah, and that opportunity was no longer. And I think that I, 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 I think I found it really difficult to get over that and, and get my head around doing it all again. Um, so in hindsight, I think I probably knew that that was that was probably
0: it for me. Yeah, not no no kind of inclination to go for another county. Um, well, before the Somerset
1: role came up. Um, I, I had actually got an agent on board, and I know that's one of your questions. Uh, a bloke called Phil Weston. He was helping me out, trying to find counties, and and actually the opportunities were few and far between. For whatever reason, whether you know whether it be the reputation that I kind of built up for myself as, as being as as lacking with the bat, maybe um, naturally there's only a couple of keepers on each team's staff, so that made things harder. Um considering I wasn't going to get a place purely as a batter. So the opportunities actually weren't easy to come by. Um so yeah, um a combination of me just being a bit fed up with it all and the opportunities not being there, I guess um,
0: I guess decided that that that, that was probably it for Somerset Opportunity. And I mean, since then you've gone into coaching. Was it always going to be coaching for you, or did you have any other plans? No, actually, I I didn't like coaching when I was playing.
1: Um, possibly just because it was more cricket, and you you know you were you were in and around the game enough as it was. But uh, yeah, even when I finished at Somerset, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I I hadn't really done much coaching before. Um, I'd yeah I ended up. I did a little bit of work like in hospitality behind a bar and stuff like that. It's pretty standard, just for a bit of money mostly. Um, I did a little bit of work experience with a sponsorship company. My best mate was working for them at the time. He just kind of got me into the office for a few days a week. So I tried that out um, and didn't have a clue what I wanted to do and just fell into coaching. Um, I don't know if you know Dan Housego. Mm. Um, he's got a coaching company, a very successful coaching company, and I just ended up, I actually ended up trialling with him at Somerset and I also played against him. I was playing for Essex, he was playing for Glamorgan. So our paths kind of crossed and obviously we knew each other from playing against each other when we were professional. Uh, He got in touch and I ended up just doing a couple of keeping sessions for him as part of his company with a few lads. Really enjoyed it and it genuinely just went from there.
0: And you now run your own coaching company, are you sort of a freelance coach?
1: Yeah, I don't have my own company, um, I'm, I'm yeah, self-employed effectively, and just work, I work for various counties, I work for Hampshire, uh, I did a little bit of Kent actually last year, which is really good. Um, I've done quite a bit of Sussex in the past, and I work a lot with England women, mm. so they're kind of my main roles, and just float, as, as you do, float around the country, from place to place
0: living out of uh, suitcases in hotels yeah absolutely and going back to hampshire as a coach was that how was that did was there ever that temptation to kind of go you know what no actually i'm not going to do that or was it was it all right no no it was probably the opposite i think because i needed opportunities
1: um and as i've said hampshire you know it's my home they're my family um They were really good to me and got me got me in got me working with the keepers. Um, And although although obviously I was I was devastated that I left Hampshire, um, I wouldn't have said things ended sourly. You know, my relationships with the coaches and all the players and stuff were still really strong. So it just made sense to use use those
0: connections in a way and actually get back to Hampshire and uh, and get coaching. Was was there ever a temptation to go in? I know the, the family has an accountancy business. Was there mm. ever a temptation to sort of move away from cricket completely and, and move into that? Um, there was definitely a temptation to move away
1: from cricket. Um, I would never have gone into accountancy because I'm useless with numbers. <laughs> Maths is not my forte. I'm more of like an English man, more 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 wordy. So that was that was never an option. Um, but. I the, the the thought of going into something outside of cricket was definitely appealing, you know, something new, different
0: challenges and stuff. But as I said, I fell into coaching and never really looked back. How much when, when you know, when you realise that you're not gonna have that, that playing career, how much help do you get from the, you know, the PCA from the counties that have just released you and you said you had an agent, is that when you stop playing, does that dissipate or is it still there in abundance for you? Um, i mean the p c a is always there um, and i mean i didn't really use them that
1: much, so i mean actually in saying that they helped me they helped me a bit initially with trying to find a new county immediately after leaving Hampshire uh, but then I ended up getting this agent on board, as i said uh but in terms of like a support network, I think there's a lot of a lot of support that the p c a offer but I, for whatever reason I just didn't really use them that much. Um, as I said, my support network were really my family um, and and my friends, and and Phil Weston, as I mentioned, was the guy who was
0: trying to help me get in somewhere else. You are always badged quite rightly as being an exceptional keeper, but your batting wasn't quite up to it. Do you think that became more of a self-fulfilling prophecy, and people focused on? you bat in and focused on the negatives rather than on the positives because you had this reputation. Yeah, um, I think it was a combination of a lot of things and I know one of your questions is
1: about potentially being exposed to first-class cricket mm. before I was ready. So I think there was definitely an element of that, um, having, you know, having accomplished a decent amount with the gloves and definitely being at the level where I could compete with the gloves at first-team level, at first-class level, um, and my batting ultimately wasn't up to speed, wasn't as good as my glove work was, so it did get exposed a little bit. Um, and I guess also maybe because I was so good at keeping, you know, I, I, I got noticed for that and immediately then got labelled as a guy that's a brilliant keeper but but can't bat. You know, I, I do think it was a bit unfair and... I was still young. I was still very much learning the trade and as I'm sure you know, you know, first-class batters don't don't figure it out really until, you know, like early 30s, if we're honest. You know, that's the twilight of their career the last kind of five years or so. So for me to get written off in a way at such an early age I think was really unfair and and it was a monkey that I just couldn't shift. You know, I just, that reputation just built and built and it, I guess it got to me massively um, and it ended up being a hole that I just couldn't dig myself out of,
0: unfortunately. I mean, you say you, you, um, you know, for, the, for those people who, who are listening who don't know, um, Michael's written a fantastic book about his career and, and coming to the end of it, you you talk about how in that book, how much you worked on your batting because of that monkey on your back. Does that make you now a better batting coach? Um. I'd like to think so. Yeah, I, I definitely think I can.
1: I'm able to kind of resonate with players that are struggling more than maybe the next person might be able to. Um, and I've done a lot of reflecting on my career and, and, and how I went about it, and, un, and, and I've understood you know where I went wrong. Um, and I think those struggles, as you say. I think are really important if you if you want to go on and be a coach because you you're gonna you're gonna work with loads of different players at different stages of their development and if you you know if you can't resonate with them if you can't understand what they're going through what they're thinking then you're gonna struggle that's ultimately part well it's a huge part of coaching actually it's just that mental side of it and and that mentorship if you like especially at a high level most players you know know what they're doing technique's pretty decent you might tweak it here and there but to actually understand what players are going through, to, to be able to connect with them on like an emotional level, I think is really important. So I would say absolutely. I think those those struggles I went through as a player have definitely put me in, in good stead as a coach.
0: Do you find it easier to coach batting, which you had to work out so hard yourself, or wicket-keeping, which came quite easy to you, which you never, maybe didn't have to work as hard at? Um, see, it's a it's a great question,
1: and actually, I. I had to reflect a lot as a coach. I had to reflect a lot on what I did as a player, as a keeper, um, because I, I was fortunate enough that actually I was, I was able just to go out and do it. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't think a huge amount about it. Um, I had a very good coach from quite a young age, so my basics were very, very strong and solid, robust. By the time I got to, you know, first team, so I was able just to go out and. And just play on instinct, uh, rely on those basics that I would trained years, years previous. Um, and as I said, I didn't do much thinking about it. So I had to kind of, had to kind of reflect a lot and unravel basically everything that I had built up over the years as a player, and figure out, you know, why I did this, why I did that. Um, and it was actually really, really—it was a brilliant process. I've never thought about the game more. Now I'm a coach, you know, compared to when I was playing. Um, so it's two complete opposites, I think. Um keeping, as I said, had to had to think everything through as I did um when I was playing, I had to think it all through and, and figure it all out. Now I'm a coach, so I can then obviously relay that and, and figure it out for the players that I'm working with. Uh and batting-wise, I did a lot of thinking about it when I was playing. Um so I've got that certainly to fall back on as a coach. Um but also there was there was elements of my game that I didn't understand that I'm now beginning to learn about, and, and my knowledge on batting is is far more robust now as a coach because obviously I'm constantly learning all the time. So yeah, two slightly different ends of the scale actually, but um, I think it's, it's it's so important, especially well, as a coach as a player, that you you're always thinking about your game, you're always reflecting, you're always trying
0: to move yourself and your thinking forward. It's so important. How much did your experiences of playing the game? How much do you see those in your coaching? When you're coaching, do you think back to the coach that you had, or and what maybe you wish you'd had from them?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I'd imagine every player looks back on on their career or reflects during their career. On you know on on the on the significant people that have influenced them and in their games, and I could think of a few coaches that had a real positive impact on me as a player. Um, but I could also think of a few areas where I was potentially lacking. I think as a as a really young raw player that was, I guess, put under a little bit of scrutiny and a little bit of pressure quite early on in their career. I'm not sure I had like the emotional support that. I feel like I needed at the time. Um, and I would say I've I've tried really hard to provide that for the players that I work with now as a coach myself. Um, and I guess it's something also that's becoming more and more apparent is the mental side of the game and just mental health in general, isn't it? People are becoming awesome. more and more aware of it and more willing to talk about it now. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge, huge part of coaching and it's a massive part of the game now.
0: How much time do you, think you spend when you're coaching actually working on the technical side compared to the mental side of it?
1: I think it very much depends on the level you're coaching at. If you're coaching at a really high level, um, you know, a professional level, quite often you don't spend much time talking about technique. It's a lot of facilitating, you know, finding different ways of putting players under pressure and constantly trying to push them and improve them that way um and as a result of that you have a lot of conversations around the mental side of it um it's pro- it's it's probably 50-50 if not slightly more towards the mental side of it i would say it's as i said it's a huge huge part of the game especially at a, an elite level where players have a pretty good understanding of what their technique looks like um you might tweak things here and there and obviously habits creep in that you have to iron out every so often. But but generally being there as a support network and, and someone to bounce ideas off and, and talk things through, I think, is is almost the main role of a coach. And I guess as you then work down the levels, players become a little bit more technically inefficient. So you have to potentially talk a little bit more about the technical side of things, do a little bit more work on, on, on their basics, etc., etc. But um, certainly at the top level, the mental side of it, it's a huge,
0: huge part. I mean, you talk in your book about it may have been different had Nick Potter stayed on at, at Hampshire. How much impact do you think having that senior pro would have been for you? What What would you have got from that?
1: I think it would have made my progression into the first team a little bit more gradual. Which I think I would have benefited from really for the reasons we mentioned earlier, in terms of developing my batting, potentially in the second team, where I could really learn, learn the game, learn the trade without having too much scrutiny and pressure on myself immediately. So I think that would have helped a lot. Um, but you know, he was a guy that had played a huge amount of cricket and it was incredibly experienced. And to be able to learn off him, spend a bit more time with him, have him, you know, help me through Whatever I needed help with at the time, I think would have made it would have made a really big difference. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, that wasn't to be. So, so there you go. I think that's something for those that read my book. That's something he suggested as well. Actually, mm. if Hampshire had extended his contract for a couple of years, he would have you know taken me under his wing, as it were, and, and made an effort to really
0: guide me through my career. Yeah, I found it re- reading your book. I found it fascinating that that was never even mentioned to him by Hampshire. You know, you think a strong senior pro who could go and captain the second team and, and help bring players through. I think that, you know, I see a lot of counties do that. I know, you know, Derbyshire who I follow had Darren Smith do that last year. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the impact that Smithy had on, on the, on the guys coming through was, you know, phenomenal to have such a a quality player doing that. And I found it amazing that Hampshire didn't do that. And, you know, (laughs) just to, back up what you're saying in your book. I found it interesting, really fascinating You, your book when you talked about the skills of being a keeper in picking line and length, transferring to batting so much. I'd never thought about it before. Is that something yeah. you now pass on to your keepers and your batters to really think about?
1: Definitely. I, I remember it frustrated me a lot as a player because you know I couldn't quite get my head around how I could be so effective with the gloves and... You know, potentially lacking with the bat. When, when, to me, they involve very similar skills. But I would say to any player, always look for, um, you know, for parallels between whatever skills you do. You know, whether it be whether it be batting, and keeping, um, anything, bowling, throwing, all that sort of stuff. Any, anything, any links you can make, um, it's got to be a good thing. And I, I think you'd be you'd be silly not to explore that. I certainly talk a lot we've mentioned the mental side of the game but in terms of my batters and the keepers I ter- certainly talk to them a lot about transferring mental routines mental methods that they use for batting that they might be able to implement in their keeping you know because it's the same sort of thing it's the same sort of rhythm every ball you know the bowler gets to his to his top of his mark you've got to start switching on you've got to relax in between balls so it's very a very similar rhythm and i think the more the more parallels the more links you can get between the two
0: the better And um, your book i mean i i think i got it for christmas and read it very very quickly i found it really 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 interesting did you find it quite a cathartic experience to to go through to write it yeah very much so um it was really difficult
1: at the start, and the, the process of writing it, it was, I think it was over a couple of years, so it was a decent amount of time that it took to kind of write it and pull it all together. And at the start, it was really, it was really hard, really difficult, because so I guess that was the first, I'm used to actually talking about you know, what I'm going through, what I'm feeling. Um, but obviously with this, I had to. And at the start, as I said, it was really hard, really difficult, just reliving all those experiences that I had as a player that I'm obviously now without. Um, and it gradually got easier and easier and easier. And I, I completely believe that that process of writing the book enabled me to kind of, you know, draw a little bit of a line under my playing career and, and move on, as it were. Um, yeah. So funnily enough, I think it helped. It helped massively. And as you said, it's you know, very cathartic looking back. And um, it was it was actually a really important
0: process that I went through to enable me to move on. Did you? I mean, people say some fantastic things about you in the book and the quality of your keeping, and that they can't believe that you're not still playing. Did that make it easier or harder? It actually, it did make it very hard. It was really tough. Like, whilst hearing
1: those sort of comments is, you know, it's brilliant, it's very nice for your ego and stuff, and it makes you feel good. But actually, um, you know, knowing knowing people's opinions of you and how many high profile players thought so highly of you for you to now be completely out of the game and no longer doing it you know, no longer doing what you were so good at it was it was really difficult to hear
0: really difficult I mean you you I mean you, you say you were so good at and you were an exceptional keeper do you do you sit back now and have sort of highlights of your playing career that you, you still really cherish um, yeah,
1: of course, and I think um, my answers would be fairly obvious. The, the trophies we won, yeah. um, you know, that, that final, the final ball at Lords was an incredible moment for it to end how it did. Um, that was my first time I'd ever been to Lords, ever been to Lords, let alone played there. Mm. Um, so yeah, those those obvious memories stick out. You know, my my hundred that I got at Headingley, um, batted with Simon Katic, you know, legend of the game. So those sort of memories really stick with you. Um, I think the the time when I was at my very best, I reckon, with the gloves was the 2011 T20 season. We had Shahid Afridi, Imran Tahir. We had, I think, Briggsie was still playing. Dorse. We had plenty of yeah. slower bowlers. Um, we, Hampshire prepared, you know, slow, dust heaps that were ragging square and I was I was in the game all the time and I absolutely loved it completely thrived off it and having those you know the bowlers of that quality and Mascarenhas would have been in the attack as well so I spent the majority of my time stood up and there were so many things going on the ball was beating about all the time and I absolutely loved it and um, that ironically we flew through the group stages and then we we got knocked out in the in the first game of finals day um so we did, you know, we didn't go on to win, but that that uh, that season T Twenty cricket was incredible.
0: Do you have the same kind of highlights in your coaching career? I know, you know, you were working with the women's, you know, England side when they won the World Cup at, at Lords. Does that still have the same kind of thrill for you as a coach as it did as winning there as a player? Yeah, you know what? I had this conversation with someone recently, and I think so. My
1: first. I did a little bit of keeping and coaching at Hampshire. uh, But my most involved role, my first most involved role, was with the England women. And it was the year that they won the World Cup, 2017. Um, Ironically, it was the second time that I'd been to Mm Lords for their final, and of course they won. Um, And watching them win, I was in the stand, watching them win... uh, I, I, can, I had all the same experiences that I did when I was playing and when we were winning. Um, and I guess that was possibly the moment when I realised that actually I can get everything that I loved about playing. You know, the camaraderie, the togetherness, the um, you know achieving, achieving what we achieved, going out, challenging yourself, all those brilliant things that you, you get from playing. I realised watching the girls go out there, do their thing, I realised that I could get all of those things from coaching, and I think that was probably, you know, probably the turning point that
0: made me realise actually this is this is what I want to do. I mean, working with England women, you work with Sarah Taylor, who, you know, is one of the best wicket keepers I've ever seen live. Mm-hmm. What she like to work with, because I mean, natural ability wise, she looks phenomenal. Yeah, um, and
1: I think that's exactly it. She's she's naturally incredibly gifted and. Um she she relies possibly too much on that. Um, I think she probably could have trained harder and, and actually been even better than what she was, but you're absolutely right. Her natural ability was freakish uh, with bat and with the gloves. Um, and I always say something you can't teach when it comes to keeping is, is just that like innate ability to always know when the ball's coming your way to always like be really hungry for the ball, always want it. And someone like MS Dhoni, who's who's not the most technically gifted keeper, but he seems to have that same instinct. He's just always there when he needs to be. And he's always bang on it when he needs to be. It's like he knows you know, the ball's beating the bat every time. And that's something you, you can't teach. And that's something that Sarah had in abundance. Um, and as you know, she was able to do
0: some brilliant things because of it and then i mean amy jones has followed on i mean she you've got two fantastic keeps to work with is she is she as good um i would say actually amy is technically better than
1: sarah um but amy has to work on on that side of the game that i just mentioned that sarah is extremely good at naturally you know amy needs to keep being really hungry and, and constantly expectable to come to her. And and, and she's made huge improvements on that. But uh, whilst Sarah's you know retired now, when they were both playing together, we had the two best keepers, mm. female keepers in the world. And I would put Jonesy as the top keeper in the world yeah. now within the women's game. Um, so I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to work with those two um but no jonesy's jonesy's improved massively since i first started working with her Uh, and as i said may even be probably
0: probably probably would be technically better than sarah um so she's got a really exciting future ahead of her and is that when quarantine and lockdown ends is that something that you'll continue to work with with the england women's team
1: yeah i absolutely love working with them to be honest um it's (laughs) yeah So it's working, working with women is slightly different to working with blokes. You know, the, the relationship, uh, the mentorship that we talked about, you know, they, they really value that. And I think because it's one of my core principles as a coach, um, it just works and I absolutely love it. It's so rewarding working with them. Um, so I, I very much hope to continue
0: that and hopefully actually expand my role with them um, in the near future. I've got to ask. If, I mean, you're still only 29, is that right? I've not, yeah, yep, not aged drastically. But, if um, if a county called you up tomorrow and said, "Batesy, we're short. You know, we've only really got one senior keeper on our staff. He's bust his finger, and we've got a game tomorrow. We want to offer you a short-term deal." Yeah, how tempting would that be? Uh, very
1: tempting. Um, I think I. Th- I mean, there'll be other players out there that might argue this, but. Certainly, the way I feel about it is, I don't, I don't think you ever quite get over not playing. You know, you you don't ever quite properly draw the line under your playing career. And if if the opportunity came along to just do it all again, yeah, I think I would absolutely. I would. Um, I still, I still, I might it might take me a week or so to get back into it and get up to speed. But and um, as you might know, I'm I'm still playing, you know, club cricket and stuff. So I'm not completely out of the game. I would. Yeah, I think I'd be silly not to. I would absolutely love that opportunity, and, and interestingly, I think I would treat it so differently. Um, and it's easy to say, isn't it? Hindsight and having reflected on my career and and what I might do differently had had my time again. But um, yeah, I would, I would, I would absolutely love it, and I think I would just
0: appreciate every single moment of it. I, I meant to ask this earlier, and um, you mentioned in your book about how skills with wicket-keeping are really transferable to to goalkeeping. And Mm. I had Jack Russell on um, in the first episode, and he coached Forest Green Rovers as a wicket-keeping coach for a period of time. Would that, you know, if if a football club rang you up and said, right, to come and work with our keepers, is that something you think you could do? Um, I've done this.
1: I've done it a little bit, actually. So there's a, a Leicester Academy goalkeeping coach that I've got in a couple of times just to do a session with the with the England girls. Mm-hmm. Obviously he's quite close to love, but he literally lives yeah. down the road, so that's perfect. Um, I've also spent a little bit of time at Bournemouth's goalkeeping department, um, you know, working with their goalkeepers. I took the Hampshire keepers along. We did a joint session with them uh, and I've just bounced ideas off, off their coaches. Their coaches are brilliant, you know, they're similar to me, really proactive, you know, love, love looking for Um, links to other sports and stuff Um, and there are a lot of there are a lot of um, there are a lot of links from goalkeeping to to keeping that are applicable Uh, I think actually more fielding I think is more similar to goalkeeping than than wicketkeeping is I think it's very very similar goalkeeping and fielding Um, but I think it's really important I think it's to find to find comparisons with other sports and apply them to cricket. I think is it's a it's a really healthy thing to do. It's good for the players because it brings a little bit of variety into it. And as you know, you know cricketers love football as well. Any excuse to get a football out and kick it around, they'll they'll take it every day of the week. So I think it's just a, it's a good, healthy, enjoyable thing to do. Um, whether I'd be able to do it properly, you know, actually transition into the into the football side of it, I have no idea. I used to play. In goal as a youngster, um, so I guess I'd have a little bit experience from that side of things. But I mean, I'd, I'd never say never. But there are there are huge amounts of uh, comparisons between the
0: two, definitely. You mentioned foot cricketers and football there, and and some counties and England have banned them playing yeah. football in the warm-up. War. Where do you stand on that? Is there is there anything wrong with them getting a football out and having a kick around before the game? Well, I know I know how much
1: players love it. Um, and the county season, especially well, the international season as well, it's, it's, it's really hard. Like you know, players that are playing every game, they're, they're at the grounds day in day out, they're working hard. championship, championship cricket especially is a, it's a real hard slog and it's, it's a mental battle more than anything. And being able just to kick a ball about, have a bit of fun with your mates at the start of a, a day does give that little bit of a release um and it just gets everyone going and it's i think it's really important from that side of things but ultimately if you're losing players you know they're getting injured like serious injuries as well because we had a lot at hampshire when i was there we had several serious knee injuries and ankle injuries and if you're losing your best players due to playing a bit of football before a game it's it's probably not the way forward, is it? But until that happens, I think they've got to crack on because it's so important to the players. It means so much. But it's a difficult one.
0: I'd hate to be a physio in that situation. <laughs> um, I've got to ask, you know, do you have memorabilia from your playing career up around your house? Is it there or is it in a box in the loft or anything like that? Or is it there to remind you? Um, it's It's most of It's all... At my parents' house
1: in my in my old room, I've got stuff on the wall so I've got a couple of stumps from our various uh one day trophies um that I managed to pick up so I've got the stump from uh from Lord's that's on the wall um Hampshire actually gave me a really nice uh, it was a picture frame a couple of pictures of me during my a couple of action shots during my playing career um and then the players had written little messages around the frame um so I've got that big frame on my wall at home that was that was actually a really nice touch so um, all my medals kind of hang off that my sister blew up a big picture of us winning at Lord. so I've got all of those things up and around the house but it's my parents uh, in my bedroom
0: so there's a bit of a shrine when I go there <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to touch it no. do you have any any sort of memory from your coaching days like you know the the England World Cup winners is there anything that you have from that um, so the I guess because um,
1: with the England women, their their successes and their campaigns and when they won the World Cup and stuff. Because I wasn't directly involved on the day, I didn't get you know any medals or anything yeah. like that. Um, I guess the most memorabilia I've got uh, from a coaching perspective has been with Western Storm. Yeah, so I've, I've yeah, so the, the women's T20 team and. I, absolutely adored working with them and we were you know we were lucky and that we were quite successful so the last few years um during the super league uh they obviously dedicated my my whole time to them we we won a couple of trophies so got medals and, and pictures and stuff from that but i always always hold those sort of things quite dear to me um i think it's important you hold on to those good memories
0: um, just you mentioning the the KSL, and obviously that's now no more. Were you would you be hoping to pick up a gig coaching one of the women's hundred teams? Hmm. Yeah, I was down to um, I was down to be the assistant
1: coach in London Spirit okay. this year um, with Trevor Griffin, who was the head coach at Western Storm. So we were going to be back together again. We we worked brilliantly together. So that was I was very much looking forward to that. But obviously that wasn't to be this year. Um, and then what happens next year? I've no idea whether those appointments will stay in place. Um, but I would certainly be looking to get involved in that definitely.
0: And one of my kind of cricketing, I don't know, idiosyncrasies obsessions is with squad numbers. Um, mm. You always wore sixteen. Did that? Did you choose that or was it just given to you or did it have any significance to you? No, I was just given it. I was given it at Hampshire. Um, I quite liked
1: it, actually. Sometimes you get, well, that was the only number I was given, but I know players sometimes get given numbers that they just don't like and they ask for another one, but it all depends on what numbers are available at the time. But no, I got given that. I quite liked it, so I stuck with it. Um, and I got asked when I went to Somerset what number I'd like, so I requested the same number um and you know, if things move forward from there i would I would want that same number whoever I play with actually we've got uh, so Wokian the club that I play for yep. um the league changed the color kit for the one day games, so we had names and numbers on our backs, and I had sixteen on that as well so um I' yeah it's it, it means a lot to me actually number sixteen so i will I will keep it for
0: as long as I can. do you keep an eye out for for number sixteens on other teams as well yeah. yeah. I do, yeah. Used to, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Um, yeah, I used to just
1: create create teams in my mind just purely of number 16 just to see what we look
0: like. Owen I mean, Morgan's number 16, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, d- I did to do that, funny enough. Fellow keeper at Derbyshire, Harvey Hussain, he wears 16. So met, you know, yeah. maybe it's the keepers' number. I yeah, didn't maybe. say last year. I went through all that. I've always, not any standard, but I've always worn number 19. And I went through the counties last year and looked at every number nineteen who there was and tried to see how can how many times it appeared. And it was half of the counties had a nineteen and half didn't. So suddenly I I had a greater affinity for nine nine counties over the eighteen. Yeah, there you go. What advice would you give to a young cricketer starting out today, or what advice do you give to young cricketers starting out today for their career? I would I would encourage
1: them to think about the game as much as they can. Um, as I said, I was I was possibly a little bit passive when I was younger. You know, I just got swept up in in, in the bubble and and drifted a little bit maybe. Um, so I would encourage them to to think as much about the game as they can. Draw as much knowledge from anyone as possible. You know, all the, all the all the senior players they get exposed to just just pick their brains constantly Um, and and be, with that, be really smart about the way you train. So I would have said, particularly with my batting, I worked really hard, but I think I could have worked smarter. Mm -hmm. So those two things combined, you know, always reassess, reflect, and think about your game and try and train really smart and savvy. And the last thing would just be to try, try and enjoy it, try and live in the moment as much as you can, Um, because it's really easy to get swept away by it all and uh, put a lot of pressure on yourself. Um, Be really aware of the external pressures, and I think that 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 builds up as it did as it did with me, Um, and it takes away from from why you were playing in the first place. You know, I, I, I wish. I wish I had just taken a step back every so often and kind of appreciated what I was
0: doing, how good it was, and, and just tried to enjoy it a little bit more. And Michael Bates, in five years' time, what, where is he, and what's he doing? Um, well, I've, I've obviously got I've got my my aspirations and my goals within
1: coaching. Um, ultimately, I'd love to become a head coach. Um, whether that be with England women, whether that be at a first-class county, or, or whether that's even beyond that, um, but you're probably looking at kind of you know 10, 15 years for that to happen. Um, so my journey between now and then, um, hopefully getting more and more involved in the women's game. Um, I'd quite like to explore potentially the opportunity to you know to do some specialist wicket keeping with uh, the England team, the, the men's team, for example. I work really closely with Bruce French, um, so that might be an opening somewhere along the line. Um, but that's you know it's all it's all part of my journey. I'm constantly trying to learn, um, develop myself as a person, as a coach, um, and, and hopefully eventually get you know get to that that, that top spot of being head coach somewhere.
0: I have no doubt that Michael could and probably should still be doing a job for a county today and I'm gutted we didn't get to see him keep wicket more often. Watching him behind the stumps is truly a thing of beauty and if you haven't seen much of him then go on YouTube and check him out. While I'd love to have seen him play more, it would have deprived many keepers and players an amazing coach to guide them through their careers. As I mentioned in the podcast, Michael's written an excellent book with an equally excellent writer Tom Hewlin about his career. The book's called Keeping Up and if you're looking for some lockdown reading, I can wholeheartedly recommend it. Next time on the Back to the Pavilion podcast, we have a cult icon from New Road in Worcestershire, a man who recorded match figures of 1265 and the small matter of scored a century in the same match. So, join me next time to find out what Jack Shantry's been doing since he hung up his boots as we welcome him back to the Pavilion. As ever, I'd love to hear your feedback on the podcast, player suggestions or anything else that you'd like me to ask them. The best way to get in touch is through Twitter, where you can tweet me at at Lloydzilla. That's all from me today, so please, take care of yourselves and others. I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye bye.